Thank you, Ronnie. And thanks, worship team. You guys are just amazing today. Uh, I noticed um, um, Kevin was on the drums, and I just met him last week. And I tell you, Kendra, you don't let any grass grow under your feet, do you? You (laughs) Recruit somebody right away. (laughs) Way to go. Way to go. Thanks, Kevin, for participating in that. Let's, uh, Let's pray together. Father, you are the King of kings, and we adore you. We adore you in the beauty of your holiness. And, and Jesus, we recognize you as the victorious, suffering Savior. And we welcome your presence this morning. Holy Spirit, you are our comforter and truth teller. You are our teacher who shows us how to live boldly in the kingdom. Father, this morning I pray with the psalmist uh, from Psalm 37 uh, to wait constantly for him. Do not fret over the apparent success of a sinner, but a man who carries out wicked schemes. And don't be angry and don't fret. This only leads to trouble. Father, we take these words to heart and those simple instructions you gave us um, in the Sermon on the Mount, just to seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added. And Father, I know that I can think of a thousand excuses for my anxiety and for my concerns and worry. And, and Father, I just want to be able to follow the simplest instructions that you've given us, as I know we all do here in this room. We recognize that you know every chapter in our story and that uh, you know every care about the significant things in our life that keep us up at night, as well as the small details. And you know the burdens that we carry and sometimes we carry burdens that you never asked us to. And so, Father, we, uh, we ask that you take them away from us and you just fill our hearts with your presence and your spirit and your calmness. And we will seek first the kingdom and trust you for the rest. And, Father, this morning we, we need to lift up and pray for the people in, in Hawaii and the island of Maui and it's just the devastation of that island. And uh, pray for the people there, the... We pray for the families who have lost loved ones and the families who have lost their homes and lost everything. I just can't imagine the devastation. And So, Father, we ask that you somehow work in this situation, that you bring your grace to it, that you bring your comfort somehow and consolation through the Spirit, that you mobilize the brethren around, especially in this country, um, to... to uh, serve and we pray for the relief organizations that are there and the the trying circumstances that they're under and we just pray that this will get rebuilt and 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 people will begin to see hope uh, because because if your people are there to help and so father we ask your wisdom for us as well as how to best serve our brothers and sisters there our fellow americans and um and we ask for your guidance and wisdom And Father, we also commit this time to you as we look into your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the promises that you have made that we can count on. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a little uh, info here. Uh, I I took my wife to the airport. She's in England right now. Uh, Took her there. (laughs) I'll tell her that you applaud that she was away. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm only kidding. I know, I know. And people are asking me, so well, you didn't go with her? And I just say, well, I wasn't invited. I'm sorry. 
when, when we were there in the spring, they got to talking, and, and Katie was talking about her, her, uh, her, her break, and uh, that her husband, who is a, kind of as a mountaineer, he was climbing mountains that weekend, and she says, why don't you come while Pete's gone? And uh, Pete made the big mistake of planning this, this trip over their anniversary, so <laughs> big, big mistake. But anyway, uh, so she invited Sue. We said, why, Mom, why don't you come back, you know, over and during, and we'll spend a couple of weeks together. So that's why she's there. And I uh, look forward to picking her up. And she got there safe and sound. She's, she's traveled by herself quite a bit, but never across the pond. And uh, so she was a little bit nervous, but everything worked out well. Her luggage arrived the same time she did, so that's a good thing. Uh, earlier in the year... Um, Many of you know uh, Tim Keller passed away. Uh, Tim Keller was the founder and pastor of, of um, I believe it's Redeemer uh, Presbyterian in New York City. My best friend, Stephen, uh, actually went to his church planting school when he went to New York City to plant, to, uh, plant a church there and participated in his program. Uh, in my opinion, um, Tim Keller, we lost a very compassionate, thoughtful, and reasonable voice in the evangelical church uh, due to thyroid cancer. But he also had an experience of cancer in uh, 2003, I think it was, years before that, uh, with thyroid cancer, and they had to take out his, his thyroid. And uh, he was, uh, went into surgery, and uh, he, was, he, he was worried, and he was kind of concerned, but he had this experience uh, while he was waiting to, be, uh, to receive the anesthetic, and he writes about it later on after he came out of it. God chose to heal him of the thyroid cancer, but then... He was, he was uh, passed on earlier this year with colon cancer. I believe it's colon. It might have been pancreatic cancer. I'm not sure. But anyway, he writes this. He says, There have been many times in my life when I felt the peace that passes understanding. But there was one time for which I am very grateful. It was just before my cancer surgery. My thyroid was about to be removed. And after that, I faced treatment with radioactive iodine to destroy any residual cancerous thyroid tissue in my body. Of course, my whole family and I were shaken by it all and deeply anxious. And on the morning of my surgery, after I said goodbyes to my wife and sons, I was wheeled into a room to be prepped. And in the moments before they gave me the anesthetic, I prayed. And to my surprise, I got a sudden, clear, new perspective on everything. It seemed to me that the universe was an enormous realm of joy, mirth, and high beauty. Of course it was. Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And within this great globe of glory was only one little speck of darkness, our world, where there was temporarily pain and suffering. But it was only one speck, and soon that speck would fade away, and everything would be light. And I thought, it doesn't really matter how the surgery goes everything will be all right. Me, my wife, my children, my church will all be all right. And I went to sleep with a bright peace on my heart. A lot of us have experienced, maybe have had experiences like this, and when we have these experiences, sometimes when we're half awake and half asleep, and, and sometimes we think those, those are the times that are, that are most inattentive, that, that we're not really paying attention but I have come to believe that I think that these experiences, these times, are actually uh, times when we were more focused. There's less distraction. Our, our vision is narrowed down. 
but a lot of people still say, well, that's just the subconscious mind talking, or you're only seeing what you want to see, and it's just, you know, in your, in your head, all this stuff, and, uh, and basically it's just a bunch of hype. That's all it is. Now, when you think about it, <clears throat> when you look at Jesus' extraordinary claims, you can kind of see where, yeah, it's just a bunch of hype. But that's really down the bottom line, isn't it? That we take his claims, we take his life, we take what he said and what he did and what he accomplished, and we either say it's either hope or it's just a bunch of hype. Because those claims are pretty extraordinary. My uh, plan for August is we are winding down this series on hope. We've talked a lot about the personal hope of, you know, in, the, in our daily lives and things. And this last thing in August, I want to talk, talk about our Christian hope, the broader perspective. Uh, this morning, I want to talk about a little bit, just a little bit, touch a little bit up about the hope for the world. And um, let's see, well, I got to turn it on, don't I? And next week, we'll look at more of the personal hope. What does it do to us personally? And I'm titling that good news or good advice. And my point is that this good news is hope, that it is hope and not a bunch of hype. And last week, I started on one to talk about how, how this, this, this movement of what Jesus started and what he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, of how it, how it handled in the confrontation with evil and how it, how it imagined how it uh, conquered evil. And we had a lot going on last week, so I zoomed over a few things, skipped over a big chunk. So I just kind of want to pick up where we left off a little bit, review that, and because it's so important of what we're going to see today, of what is, how did that conquer evil? And I titled that, I kind of took a spin on John Lennon's song, Imagine, and I titled it, Imagine There's No Evil. Imagine if there's no evil. And I love that song. I think it's a great, beautiful song because it paints a wonderful picture. And basically what he is talking about, what John Lennon is talking about, is imagine a world without evil. The only thing is, he doesn't offer a solution. He's just something, it's just a, a figment of your imagination. But what Jesus does when he comes along, that he asks us to use our imagination, but he tests, asks us to take, the, take his message and take the gospel and imagine what that's going to be like. This isn't just a figment of imagination that we invent inside of our head. It's something that we take as the message of the gospel and wonder, what in the world does that look like? So we did talk about, imagine if there's no evil, and we talked about we needed to name these things because it's kind of a dark force, and we kind of don't really understand what to think about it or what to, how to describe it and how to, how to define it, but it is real. It is very real. And we start with the Satan, and the Satan is just the a transliteration of the Hebrew word. They just took the Hebrew letters and made English letters out of them. But what it means is, is the accuser. And this is the, this is the power behind it all. Uh, this is the one who, who, um, who is behind all the, the dark, dark force. Is he a person? Not really sure. It's, uh, I don't want to give him the dignity of being a person, you know. But I do know that he is not human, and he is not God. He is not deity. He's not divine. He's not God's opposite. But he has caused a lot of trouble. He is not only opposed to us. He is not only opposed to Jesus. He's not even opposed to God. He is opposed to the whole creation. And his scheme is to bring the whole creation, including you and me, to death. That's what he's up to. 
And now that Jesus come, his plan is to thwart that plan that Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus inaugurated. And his tool to do that is sin. It is sin is its rebellion against God. We know Satan most, the most that we ever see of him really is in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 in the temptations of Jesus. And in that, in that story, the temptations of Jesus, Jesus it kind of recapitulates Israel's struggle and it recapitulates the fall of the, in the garden as well. Except where humans failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And that's what we kind of know about it as the, as the, at the most. And, and sin is his tool to thwart this plan. So it comes out in other ways. It comes out in rival thrones. And we can call this idolatry. Whenever we attract, attack, attach deity or divine activities or attributes to something else besides God, that's idolatry. When something else takes over our life and that becomes our throne, those are the things we serve, that's idolatry. And even if we consider a co-redeemer, a co-redeemer. In some places, Mary is called, like in, in, in Mexico City, there's the, the Basilica, which is where uh, Mary appeared to, in the, the Virgin of Guadalupe. That's the, the story there. And there's some old churches there and some old plaques there, and they call even Mary la co-redentora, the co-redeemer. Now, most people we knew, they said, you know, we venerate Mary, we don't worship her. But there's a lot of people who do. And even as someone, is, and, and I think as Protestants, we don't take her seriously enough, personally. But she's not the co-redentora. She's not a co-redeemer. Anything else we add, attach onto that, whether it's an institution, a person, a job, a friend, a, a church, whatever it is, and we put that much weight on something, that's idolatry, regardless of the virtue of the person that we've attached to. There's rival thrones. The absence of good. It's like that's the, the dark forces, this sort of spiritual, spiritual black hole that just sucks everything up. We say, well, the absence of good, well, that's just kind of airy. But as I mentioned last week, potholes are dangerous, especially for motorcycles. They are dangerous. Uh, you're missing rungs of a ladder. That's dangerous. That's what this, I feel like this, this whole thing is, is this spiritual dark black hole. And people have a hard time accepting that, don't really want to recognize that there's this evil force out there. But if we had talked about black holes in the 1900s, in the, in the, in the, in the 19th century, people would say we were crazy. But now we know that exist. We still can't describe them very well, but we know they exist. Well, that's the way I feel about this dark force. We can't describe it really well, we can't define it real well, but I know it's there. And finally, it leads to a dangerous split-level thinking. And what I mean by that, that's kind of a dualism where there's heaven and earth and those things are always separate. Uh, there's physical and spiritual, and uh, those things are always separate. It's, material is always bad. The spiritual is the only thing good. Uh, I knew this. <laughs> we've all probably met Christians like that, who the spirit is just, you know, they're just always constantly in some the cloud somewhere, and they just think that the, anything material is not real, or it's, at least if it's real, it's evil, or it's bad. Uh, I knew this girl in college, and she was one who, you know, kind of floated through class to class and everything, and I, and I remember running into her, and she said, hey, Gina, what's up? Jesus is up, you know? <laughs> I go, okay, yeah, right, right, very good. You carry on, boy, I tell you. But you know what I'm talking about? It's this, this idea that there's material is bad, and spirit is good, and 
and those things don't mix. And what happens when we do that, for one thing, we get paranoid. And the other thing that happens is that we begin to think that we are all good and they are all bad. They are evil, we are good, and they're out to get us. And we become paranoid with this split-level this split level direct, um, uh, dichotomy that we have. And so it produces some groups here. It produces some groups that say, oh, if we just do enough work, if we can just win some political battles, then, we'll, then we'll, we can almost usher in utopia if we can do that. And so we're exchanging basically external conformity to spiritual transformation, internal transformation. Other people think, okay, it's all evil, it's all evil, only the Spirit is good, and I'm just going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come and fix it all. And we don't do anything. Because all that's bad. The world's going to gonna burn up anyway, the world's going to be destroyed, so I'm just going to sit back and wait till Jesus comes, and he'll fix it all. That doesn't work either. That's like the, the Marxists during the Bolshevik Revolution they didn't want to improve the life of the workers because it would delay the revolution. Okay, that's not where we're at either. That's that split level. So there is good news and there is bad news. The bad news is that there's an evil force out there and we have to, we have to allow for it, we have to recognize it, and we have to expect it. It is there. No matter what our prayer life is like, no matter how organized we become as a church, no matter how solid our doctrine is, it's still out there. And it opposes us. It's still there. But the good news is that it's been defeated. That it's been won by, the, by Jesus on the cross. He has defeated the negative, the negative force. So the bad news and the good news. The good news is, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, this isn't just something we advise people, it is something that happened. The good news is that it is something that had happened, and the good news is that it's something that will happen. It is both the past and the present. The good news is news about what has happened and news about what will happen. When Jesus' first followers were, following, were, were around Jesus, they all wrote in the New Testament about what had happened. They were all expecting God to do something. That is the story of Israel, that they are all expecting God to come and come to earth and deal with evil and do something about it. And they all wondered, what is that going to look like? Is he going to come with a pillar of fire or cloud? Is he going to come with force? What's it going to look like when Jesus comes and deals with evil? And what they wrote about was that it came like Jesus. Jesus also was thinking about what did that look like when God comes and deals with evil. And the way Jesus lived his life and the way Jesus proclaimed it is going to look like a young Jewish prophet who makes his way to Jerusalem during the Passover time, who feasts and celebrates with his friends, and he finally, with prayer, succumbs to the reality of the cruelty of his fate, and he takes it on the cross, and evil is emptied out 
on him on the cross. And evil is defeated by another power, suffering love. And that's what wins. It looked like evil won. Evil burned itself out on the incarnate God. He allowed them to do the very worst to him that they possibly could do. That evil used its ultimate weapon, death, on Jesus. And he overcame. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. And I know I mentioned this before, how we get this idea that Jesus, well, he survived it. He came out unscathed. No, he didn't. He did not survive it. He was raised from the dead three days later. He did not come out of it unscathed. He came out of it very scathed. And that's how evil was defeated. A different way, a different power than what we had thought. That's what the gospel writers write about. It is the suffering love that ultimately wins the day. And that's the good news. So that's what had happened. And now the question is what it will happen. And that is our ultimate hope when this inaugurated kingdom, this inaugurated new creation comes to its completion. What does that look like? Well, we have a problem here pretty much since the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, since the Middle Ages, we feel like, or we've kind of seen, and you see it in cartoons, you see it in jokes, you see it in comics, you see it everywhere, that the idea that after, the, the, after we die, that what will happen is that we will somehow go to heaven. And that's where we will be. That, that's where we, and that's this split-level thinking, that earth is down here, it's all bad, but we're going to go to heaven. And that's what we think. And that's why we get the idea of why bother? This earth doesn't mean anything. All that matters is that I get to heaven. And the other part of that is that one day Jesus will come back, but he'll come back to take us to heaven. And there's all kinds of elaborate systems and elaborate explanations that explain all of that, all that. But really, the Bible doesn't say that much about what happens immediately after we die. Paul says that we are in the presence of the Lord. And let me tell you, let me assure you that after we die, we are safe with the Father. We are safe with Him. I'm not exactly sure how it works. Like I said, we just have a couple of passages that talk about that, that somehow we are safe with the Father. But it's an incomplete picture. The problem is it sort of distorts our view of what's really going to happen. And we think that's it. We think that somehow we will be in this spirit place forever. But what the New Testament teaches is something just not like that. It's something that's more fulfilling than that. And the reason I want to stress this is because this, I want to I open our imagination to what we look forward to. Because we get this idea that we're going to be floating in the clouds. And I remember in, as a kid, people talking about, well, you're going to be worshiping the whole time for all eternity. And I'm thinking... A church service for all eternity? I don't think so. <laughs> that doesn't even sound fun to me. And other people say, yeah, well, in heaven, you know, and you will do everything perfectly, you know. And I'm thinking, that doesn't work either. Does every baseball game, the pitcher throws a no-hitter and the batter hits a home run? I, I, that doesn't work either. 
So what is it that we're actually talking about? We're talking about a new creation. The final scene of the Bible is Jerusalem coming down to earth. That's the final scene of the Bible. We're talking about a renewal, a rescue of all creation. Satan is not just opposed to you or to Jesus. He is opposed to the creation, the whole thing. And this is what we have to look forward to. Just a few verses here. That uh, The New Testament just says this over and over and over again. As a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things heaven and things on earth. In 1 Corinthians 15, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all and in all. Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Read the whole chapter. In Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things on heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. It is earth and heaven, a renewal rescue project to rescue all of creation. That's where it's going. And that's what we're looking for. All this space and time and matter God created, and he loves it. He loves it. And so the story is, is, is not just life and death. It's a new creation that has began where the physical is free, the sla from slavery, from decay and death. Children are glorified. They are more solid than before. They are more permanent. They are more glorious. Every sunset, every splendid mountain, every uh, incredible bird song, as beautiful as that is, will even be more beautiful, will even be more breathtaking. There will be Worship in the way that we respond appropriately to who God is. Not sitting in a chair listening to, listening to some guy talk or singing some songs. That all that will, singing will be part of it. But it's where we respond appropriately. We will see people doing things of moral courage. I've said this before. When I watch a movie, I cry more watching somebody do something of nobility, something noble for someone else. That brings more tears to my eyes than some sad scene. And watching that that's what will happen. This is what will happen. Our bodies will be more glorious. They will be more solid. We will be more human. Just as we had a task and a vocation here, we will have a task and vocation there. We will be delight, delight in the music. And we had in, in this creation here, we delight in the music. We love laughter. We love light. 
it would be very strange that the new creation wouldn't have all that stuff, wouldn't it? All the things that we enjoy and delight in here, that's what we look forward to. Thomas Merton said we will become our one true self. We can't speculate on the details. We can try, but all it is is what I've just said. It's speculation. But this we know. We will have bodies to match the new creation, the new renewal. And the things that we delight in here will even be more so there in the renewal and the rescue of the creation. That's what we have to look forward to. So it is in accordance with the scripture, Paul says. And what he means by that is that he will finally put humans right. And because of that, he will put creation right. Let me back up to the very beginning in accordance to the scriptures that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole thing started with Paul creating the earth. I mean, with, with God creating the earth. Paul is explaining this. Paul didn't do it. God creating the earth. And his whole plan was to bring the earth, the world to flourishing. And the way he was going to do that was through the human family. He wanted to be present in his creation. And the way he was going to do that is through humanity. That's why the fall is so crucial. Because when we fell, it affected all of creation. And the whole plan was sidetracked. And so God, through the century, has been bringing it back. And if that's what we were committed to do in the very beginning, I am certain that's what we are, that's what we are supposed to do in the new creation. We're supposed to do what they did in the garden, the way God intended. And this is extraordinary. And yes, it's easy to see that this is hype. But the way I read the scriptures, this is where we're headed. This is the hope that we have. Now, what does this have to do with the transfiguration that, that Ronnie read earlier? That was a vision given to the disciples. It was a vision of triumph. It was to show the disciples that this is the Messiah, this is the king, you are now under his rule. From now on, he has come to conquer evil. This is God's son, the true king, the true Lord, and he is here to complete the project. He is here to conquer the force, and this ultimate weapon is the cross of suffering love. And I think it's very important that Elijah and Moses were there Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophet. And what he's saying is that all this story that we've talked about from Abraham on is now reaching its climax in Jesus Christ. And it will, fill, it will bring, he will bring it to completion. Israel knew very well the valley of the shadow of death. They knew, he knew very well from the exodus in Egypt to the terrible dark days of the judges, to Babylon and the captivity. And that is why Israel kept going back to Ezekiel chapter 37. That's the chapter where, where Ezekiel describes these dry bones suddenly coming to life, getting ligaments and tendons and flesh and praising. And they knew this is what we were headed for. This is where we are going And God is saying in the voice, this is how it's going to happen. 
this is how it's going to happen. This event, this transfiguration, I feel like it's something that the disciples centered on because it was a vision of triumph. This is the place when sins are forgiven, dark powers are defeated, the creation is rescued, the Messiah rules. You remember Moses went on the mountain to get the, to get the law. Well, here they're on a mountain, and, Jesus, and God says, this is my son, you listen to him. You are now under the rule of the Messiah. You are now under him. It is a word of hope and vindication for all humanity. This needs to be our primary concern, I think, is what God is saying. This needs to be, our life needs to be centered on this. Centered on this. This isn't hype. This is hope. The new creation has been launched in the past, and it will be fulfilled in the future. Hope is not just something we just go and cross our fingers at. It is promised, but it is not only promised, it is something we center on. And if we look at our, our destiny as just going to heaven, and it's all about me, it's all about my, my salvation, that as long as I get to heaven, I'm okay, I, I feel like we are just like the uh, little boy on the, on the beach building a sandcastle and being enthralled in that sandcastle and doesn't even notice the, the, the glorious sea that's behind him. So this is all true, that we will go and we'll be reunited with our family and reunited with Jesus, but it's only a partial part that's truth. I want us to see the big picture. That is where our hope is. That is where our destiny is. That is what we need to be centered on. It's not about me. God is not an object in our world. We are an object in his world. It is about him, and that needs to be our concern. So, in our center, we proclaim these experiences. The disciples went and proclaimed these experiences that they had, this transfiguration and the resurrection, and people can say, oh, they're just, it's just what they want to hear. Oh, it's just a vision. It's just they were in their subconscious. They were high on something or whatever, and they saw this. And yet they went out proclaiming these experiences at the risk of their own lives. And that tells me something. And we are the inheritor of those experiences. And many of us have had similar experiences like that. And we bear this message to the world. So we ask, what is our life centered on? In a time of plenty and a time of, of wealth, what is our life centered on? In a time of violence or international pressure or culture wars, what is our life centered on? In a time of discord, debate, maybe we are starting a family, maybe you're getting close to retirement, what is it centered on? What are you centered on? Maybe you're enjoying a lot of strength and health. What is it centered on? Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with health and weakness. What is it centered on? Maybe you're feeling fragile. What is it centered on? But if it's centered on anything else but this, this person, this work, this hope, it's all fragile. It won't last. It's all transient. It will all decay. It will all die. But he's just saying, repeat on this, this vision 
of the transfiguration. One promise, one person. This is where we see it. This is a vision of triumph, of new light has been born in the center of our lives. I want to close with reading again Tim Keller's description. He said, I prayed, and to my surprise, I got a sudden, clear new perspective on beauty. Of course it was. Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And within this great globe of glory was only one little speck of darkness, our world, where there was temporarily pain and suffering. But it was only one speck, and soon that speck would fade away, and everything would be light. And I thought, it doesn't really matter how the surgery goes. Everything will be all right. Me, my wife, my children, my church will all be all right. And I went to sleep with a bright peace on my heart. That's what our lives are centered on. That's where our hope is. It's much broader than just about me. It's much broader than just about you. And that makes me really look forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful so much for the hope. And these are extraordinary promises. But we believe them. And help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.